So again, I'm coming at it from the perspective as a guy living in Mother Church, and there is also potential and responsibility to be part of standing the flame of movement. It impacts lots of lives if you're in a plant and see more plant in your church. There are lots of pitfalls surrounding us as Presbyterians, I think. And I think some of those need to be overcome. I think also if you're a mother church looking to uh, grow new churches, you need to vitalise your current church and create a culture of giving and clarify your DNA, what it is about your church that works, and articulate it and do all that while you're still doing all the routine stuff of going and teaching scripture classes and things like that. It's hard as a leader of a mother church to get your head together and get things clear and get things moving in church planting. But I'm pretty convinced that the first thing you've got to do if your church is going to be a mother church is that you've got to have a healthy growing culture in your current church. Now, Don has heard me say some of these upcoming things before and said they needed to be said. So, um, bravely on I go. I want to share with you some of the distinctives of the Presbyterian Church of Queensland, which may or may not be the air you breathe down here. And you can work that out yourself. But the Presbyterian Church of Queensland is, by nature, very, 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 very reformed in theology and conservative in style. And that raises questions about whether evangelism is actually negated by that culture and whether there's cultural disconnection in the conservatism. There are things that are just conservative because that's the way they've always been done. The mindset of the Presbyterian Church in Queensland has been in the past that when you talk about the church you mean the denomination and there's a centralism that can come from that that disempowers local church families and takes uh, pulls leadership away from where it needs to be and takes away the power. Church planting as it was historically exercised in the Presbyterian Church of Queensland there was some but it was defined as finding the Presbyterians and getting them together. It was typically a matter of, I'll say more about that in a moment, but that was the game plan, find the Presbyterians instead of seeing all the Aussies converted. Mission, where it was talked about, was always overseas instead of the lost in suburbs, speaking plain Aussie to them. The planning strategy, once you found the Presbyterians, was to give them a huge debt. And we were really uh, quite effective at that. So we would lend a non-existent, non-existent congregation quite a lot of money to build a building. Uh, there was a thing called Vision 5, which uh, gifted five seedling congregations with big loans. And then they were just driven to recruit people to come to their church to help pay off the debt. 
that was the strategy for church planning. And that's just left an awful debt, uh, a legacy of debt and disempowerment. Theologically, uh, in our context, you couldn't even really talk about the gospel of Jesus. It had to be the whole counsel of the triune God. Now, preaching Christ crucified is the power of God. And I'm sure when Paul used that phrase about the whole counsel of God, he's talking about what you're doing when you're preaching the gospel. Is that his uh, God's worship? That's how we come to know the Father and receive the Spirit through faith in the Son. So, there's just an inability to get to the point end of the message. It was really a very difficult issue. A strong emphasis on the law. And you can go at that as long and hard as you like, but you can't persuade me that talking so vigorously about the law isn't going to obscure the gospel of Christ. It just, just does. And the whole leadership structure of participatory leadership and endless committees, though some committees are excellent and uh, some conveners are very effective. But, you know, instead of the other guys having bishops, we have a committee for everything that can disempower local vision and leadership and make everything just so slow. Uh, crushingly slow. So, that's the sort of uh, air we breathe, certainly point there. How in which that can you develop a growth DNA, first of all in your church and then beyond that? So a growing church does need a healthy growth DNA, the genetic code that makes things grow and thrive. And so my contention is if it's not already in the mother church, it won't be in the daughter, unless you are creating an escape pod type of church plant. If you've come to the point where you realise that the only way things are going to be freed up and changed is by doing something new, then that's good and that's worth doing, that's noble. But ideally if you're trying to grow churches from a growing healthy church, it's worth articulating good healthy DNA. So there are two reasons to plant. You've developed a growth model, so you have got a growing church. And if you're blessed with that, if you have got a growing, vibrant church, then it should be the most natural thing in the world to try to have that same thing. So snip a bit off your growing strawberry plant, plant it over there, and see it growing the same way. That's really smart and really healthy. Um, but as I said, the other reason to plant is if there's non-growth DNA that's blocking growth and so you need to set free a growable group, both of which are good and other things to do. Now, Because we're now in the process at Mitchelton of trying to revision for the 10 years ahead, I've spent a heap of time over the last three months just trying to articulate and capture what I think are the 
the really essential elements of a good, healthy, growing DNA. And this is really my work trying to describe and capture our church. Every church will be different, and so I don't want to <coughs> say this is what you need to have. I'm just giving it really as an example of but the things that I think have been ingredients in breaking through some of those theological blockages and in defining and describing what makes a healthy church. So DNA number one, I've preached a series on these if you ever want to find the MPC website, have a listen and a look. I've worked up some studies and a leader's guide for them. And it's been, I think, a really very healthy exercise. You might want to come back to some of these and argue with them. But number one, and this is much to the surprise, I think, of some in my presbytery, but we are well and truly reformed. We really are reformed. We believe in Christ alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, God's glory alone. Uh, we certainly, uh, some of the, the practical things that flow out of this, we don't do priests. We do believe in everyone ministering. There are all sorts of really helpful things that come out of that. That the guys who say they're more reformed than we are, I think miss the boat on a lot of that stuff. And they develop a really priestly culture that's very limiting. Uh, they obscure Christ alone and all sorts of other things that play around there. DNA number two, we are on a mission. And our mission is to grow followers of Jesus. That's our mantra again. But it's by taking the gospel of Christ alone and grace alone to our broken world. I think when it comes to, to mission, the message of mission, it's those things, isn't it? It's the, the stuff that articulates the gospel. So we want to clarify that and get on with the business of that and be serious about the fact we really do want to reach people with that. Number three, we teach the Bible. And again, that comes out of our reformed statement up at number one, uh, because we're convinced that followers of Jesus grow through being taught the Bible clearly in a way that leads to faith in Christ. Now again, it's not rocket science, but clear Christ-centered Bible teaching. I am firmly persuaded that Graham Goldsworthy's biblical theology stuff, his gospel and kingdom stuff, is a really good starting point for anyone who's preaching, because it's saying wherever you work from in the scriptures, Make sure it's about Jesus and make sure it's gospel of grace. And I think we Prezies traditionally have been really bad at that and really pushed back against that model of teaching the Bible. But I think if you are a growing gospel-hearted church, then you really need some sort of paradigm like that driving the Bible teaching. There's more. Uh, these are grouped sort of loosely around the sort of community we want to be. And DNA number four is we are a loving and open community. Uh, Christ gathers us naturally into loving community. But, you know, sometimes, and this has very much been the history of our church and is still the thing we're always fighting against, is as people start loving one another, they start to have only eyes for one another and stop connecting outwards. 
So we really want to keep pushing all the time. The sort of life we have is always an outward looking love, open, ready to integrate and love more and more new people and not being inward facing, inward looking group. I went to a crazy church once up the coast where we were on holidays and there were probably only about 35 people there and Lou and I and our kids went along and enjoyed the service and we came out expecting to enjoy sharing morning tea with them as we were invited to and everyone came out and stood on the footpath in a circle. This was a literal example of a closed circle. They formed into a circle and were chatting to each other and we were left outside on the footpath. And after about three minutes standing there, wondering if anyone was going to <coughs> notice us being there, we had the only kids in the place too. Uh, we just walked along because they were just so interlocked and so it was all. We don't want to be there. And it's worth articulating that and keeping measuring up against it. And we're not doing too well on in a lot of ways of our church. It's still a lot of problem. Uh, number five, we serve to make a real difference. And you know, I do find the Tim Keller stuff compelling that Richard was talking about. Uh, they do a lovely job of caring, promoting justice and stuff like that. I can't authentically raise that to the same sort of level of rhetoric that Tim Keller does. And part of it's because there's a cultural difference between America and us, where you walk out the door and find homeless people begging on the street all the time. The, the, those sort of needs aren't as immediately obvious. We're not caught up in the sort of need for um, mercy ministry as New York might be, I suspect. But we do want to make a real difference. And it just comes out of who we are as followers of Jesus, that we should naturally and authentically want to care and serve. And we just want to do it in a way that's effective and cool and resources. And I've tried to articulate that in our DNA, that we care in uh, focused ways that make a real difference. And in a way that I think should flow through in the way we staff our church and the way we do service together. There's sort of some thought that's going the way that the full DNA statement, these are just little summaries of our DNA statements. Stuff that will flow out into action in the future. A couple of contentious ones, maybe. Can you click that for me, please? Yes. Just in the way we engage with the world around us these days, and they both sort of fit in this, but number six is we believe everywhere is sacred. Now, it's a, a detailed statement that I'd encourage you to want to argue with me later down the road first. <coughs> but um, it's this whole theology of worship thing that I know is contentious among Presbyterians and certainly contentious with Pentecostal type people, but my main goal is to separate ourselves from the Pentecostal churches who come together for a worship time. We want to do contemporary music and bright, engaging church. That is not the extent of our worship. Uh, our worship is the way we present ourselves as living sacrifices all the time, everywhere. And really, the thing I'm pushing in this is I want to take away the speed bump between church and what you do when you leave church and the rest of life. I want people to be living 
as authentic serving Christians and lost. <coughs> and I want them, when they're at church, to be the same authentic, serving, loving Christians that they are, and not put on a special churchy language when they get to church, and not have this cultural shift. So it's, it's partly um, just taking up that whole issue of while you're in church, get on a Sunday, it's not entering the twilight zone, we're going back to the 1800s, or it's just being real, authentic, normal. Um, anyway, it's something that I think is one of the, the, the good distinctives of our church and there's very attractional people. And they come in, even if they've never been to church before, they just feel it's ordinary people, speaking in ordinary ways, but really serious about following Jesus and loving each other. Same there, same the rest of the week. Number seven, we know our place. Uh, and as this one unpacks, and as I said, each of these are about a paragraph in the, the formal statements. We know our time and place, and this is just an attempt to persuade us all that we're not living in Christendom anymore, where we're the dominant paradigm. And if that's the case, that we don't live in Christendom anymore, where we're the dominant paradigm, you don't set up a website to invite people to that tells people the problem with gambling and what they should think about gay marriage, or all those things. We need to actually engage in a much smarter and more subtle way than that. Our agenda is to bring people to faith in Jesus and to live obediently under his lordship. But we've got to be a whole lot smarter and more subtle in the way we do that. Uh, so we need to have a sense of where we are in our culture and know our place and interact graciously with the world. Uh, if I wasn't being recorded and didn't have a bunch of stern faces looking at me, I would say, and I'm going to say it anyway, <laughs> please, be, please be gracious with me as I say this. Now, I know that the right thing to say should be that the TV show Modern Family is the worst thing ever hit our TV screens. Uh, they've got a couple of gay guys with an adopted kid, you know? Oh, this is thin ice, isn't it? But thing about it is, holy stone looks, don't look stone. Yeah, I've got a point here. Uh, these guys invited a lady around for dinner, who was their GP, and the little girl was sitting in a high chair, and her first word was mummy. And the two guys were devastated. The little girl's first word was mum. Now, what's that doing, you see? That's just subverting the whole. That's a comedy, and it's really taking a poke at the whole uh, sadness. There's a real pathos, you know, mm. for one thing, that was really quite moving and hilarious, but also just pulling the rug out in a way that a bunch of Christians yelling about gay marriage wouldn't achieve in a year. I just think, you know, just as an example of subtlety, our first reaction is to say, oh, that's terrible to have a TV show like that. But I would want to show that episode in church, I reckon, if I'm ever talking about this issue. How, how can we cleverly engage? And I think Tim Keller is a real master at that sort of thing. I keep looking at the way he does business, 
and I think I'd love to be able to do that more and more and just being respectful. There's a, there's a great video online of Tim speaking to the staff at Google. They have an author's lunchtime session. They invite authors in. He wrote his book, The Reason for God. So here's Google, the smartest people on the planet collected in one place, I reckon. He comes in to talk at their book club. It's a huge crowd coming here. And just the way he slips under the defences and he knows when to take a step back. And sometimes he'll, he'll say, look, I'm sorry, I'm telling you this is a Christian minister, so just let me say this. Cause, you know, he's just never assuming where they're at and always anticipating. I think there's just a lot for us to learn in the way we, um, we engage and do business. Uh, just more of our DNA click from please. Thank you. Just in terms of thinking about the future, these four ones carry they're both theologically very different things, but in thinking about the future, wouldn't it be great to have in the DNA of your church that you expect and welcome change? And I've tried to see that over 12 years at Mitchelton, and it really does make things a whole lot easier when change is necessary if you've got it in your church culture that, yeah, we're not going to be inflexible. We're going to roll with it, we're going to weigh things up. If there are ways of growing followers of Jesus that are better and different, we're all for it. So we've done some astonishing things, I think, as a church, without any waves of debate because this is part of the culture. And, and I think it's lovely. But also in terms of the future, I think it's been good to have embedded in our DNA uh, this thing that's, that's really setting ourselves over against that sort of Pentecostal charismatic over-realised theology that says uh, if you're a faithful Christian you'll be blessed in every way in this world and just building the fact that we expect our satisfaction in the future, not in this fallen world and so we're about the business of caring for and encouraging one another to stand firm to the end in hard times and so, you know, don't expect it to be part of it and that really motivates and strives what we'll be doing pastorally it's really just helping people hang on when it's really tough mm. and shaping people's expectations for now and the future. Think of all the sermons in the series I did. That was the one that people found really quite helpful just to help articulate it. Now, those are the things I'm just really suggesting are helpful in articulating having shaped a church that will hopefully be a growing church. And in our case, that's the sort of DNA we want to purposefully pass on to the other churches that develop around us. Just as you follow the notes, if you flick the page, involved in moving a mother church towards planning, doing the groundwork. So the next step <coughs> after you've consolidated your DNA, you know the sort of church you are, you've uh, shaped the culture of the church, the next step after that is to be developing the vision 
and that's a clip I know we talked about those steps in the last session. After you've done that, so you've got your DNA, you've described who you are, you've described the sort of culture of churches you're trying to reproduce, you've got your vision, and you've talked about what you're seeing it to do. Then you've really got to get started. You've got to identify opportunities. And while identifying opportunities and the right workers to put their largely follows the vision, it does help, and I flagged this before, it helps to have at least one concrete scenario in mind as you're developing the vision. Because you don't want to develop the vision and then realise, well, there's actually nothing to use this shape. So there's got to be a concurrence in all of this. You've got to have, I reckon, seeds of an idea. Now, as I said before then, in our model of sending groups away from our church, there's got to be a leader they can trust to go with. And while you can, if you just happen to get the right person at the right time, you can convince people to go straight away. It's really helpful if they know and trust the person they're going with. So maybe if you've got someone on your team already who people trust, you should be looking to send that person away as a church member if they've been around a couple of years. We allowed two years lead time. Uh, look for target areas that need a gospel-centred Bible teaching church, so do your geographical homework. Look for facilities. Finding the right venue open is increasingly, increasingly hard, and we nearly came unstuck because we'd done those first two steps. We had the right guy, uh, we had the right target area with a bunch of people who already lived out that way. It was incredibly hard to find the right venue around Eaton Seal. And even then, it was only half right, and it filled up after the first 18 months because it's just a double school classroom. And just really quite frustrating. Hard not to fall for the women poor group of people, ideally 30 to 40 adults. Now, finding the right planter, gifted, godly, gracious, entrepreneurial, is really essential. And I also played this before, but I think in reality, the other way you can tell the NBC story is that we've been in the business of finding and setting up ministry opportunities for the right leaders as they turn up. Um, and all of that is happening in spite of the fact that PCQ as a culture, originally back then anyway, doesn't believe in leadership and has the generic Whitefoods view of ministry gifting. Now, what I mean by that is some of the biggest fights in Presbytery was to even get acceptance of the idea that here is a guy with the right gifts to plan a new church because the prevailing idea was every minister's the same. And you just move them around as they're called to a place and that's the way our system works. And none of us are any different to any of the others. If you're ordained, you're like the fridge or the washing machine, you just plug in and do your job. But counter that, I want to say, to plan a church, you really do need someone with peculiar gifting. And yeah, just to get a system working to get the right person with the right peculiar gifting into the right place at the right time is like moving mountains. And very tricky. I think I'll to talk more about that next time. Uh, getting started, okay, then you need to go to action plan phase once you've got opportunities. Start turning your vision into action with small achievable steps. There'll be political steps, there'll be process steps in the denomination resistant network. Financially, there'll be steps. What is affordable? Who's going to be paying for this stuff? 
uh, personnel, and get a new word there, uh, personnelly speaking, how you find a, find a recruit the right person, uh, the leadership, the core group, how many can your mother church spare, how often can you do it, what's geographically sensible, and as well as being ge geographically sensible, I found one of the big challenges was to sell to the mother church congregation that there was a real need in a particular place. It's got to be apparent that there's a need before the mother church congregation will, will buy into it. Um, so along the way for us, some opportunities were obvious, others came up along the way. But because we were already cultural, because we'd done the DNA stuff uh, in an original earlier form of what I've just been working through, uh, because we'd done the vision stuff that mapped something out before us, we were ready to jump quite quickly at the right times. Um, number five on the next page is just a story of the reality, particularly the seal plant with Garnet Swan, uh, the steps we took, the, the timing it took, um, and there's a section on why it's hard. And I, I'll just skim that and leave you to read it. But again, I just never want to speak of anything like this and leave the impression that it's easy and everything works and there aren't sleepless nights and disappointments. And there are all sorts of issues that have in retrospect being difficult for us. Things like, okay, we've articulated sort of a, a DNA and a culture and a, a paradigm. What if you've got a leader who's really gifted in most ways but is really pushing against someone? How much freedom is there in the daughter church to do things differently? If you're a daughter church trying to reach a whole bunch of uni students, you know, how much... And things like that are hard. Things that we didn't articulate clearly that come back to bite us afterwards. Um, I can talk more about those if you want to ask questions later.